in the movie Wally. Human beings are able just to laze around all day, have all their needs met by little robots, eat whenever and whatever they like, shop all that they like, and just be constantly entertained and communicate through a little computer screen just a couple of centimetres from their face. It's just supposed to be a, a fun movie in a sense. But in many ways it's the dream of the good life that's offered to us these days. And yet as that movie shows, if we settle for that kind of existence, then we miss out on something far more wonderful. Something far, far better. And the Bible agrees. God's word tells us that we're not designed for a life of idleness. Or self-centered indulgence. That's not what we're made for. And we were made for so much more. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2. And verse 4. Down to verse 7. And see what we were made for. This is uh, the creation of man. And it says in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and no shrub of the field had had yet appeared on the ground and no plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no man to work the ground but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye. And good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. I'm sure most of you know that when the Bible was written, chapter numbers and verse numbers weren't part of the original. And so the Bible authors used different techniques to divide up their books into different sections. And Moses, the author of the book of Genesis, he used a repeated phrase to separate Genesis into its different sections. 
So in chapter 5, verse 1, if you flick over and you see it, it says, this is the written account of Adam's line. Then the next section starts at chapter 6, verse 9, this is the account of Noah. Then there's the next section, Genesis 10, verse 1, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So with these repeated, uh, these repeated phrases, Moses is splitting up his book into these sections. And these sections describe what happened to the people and how God worked in their lives. And so our passage that we just read this morning is also the start of one of those sections. Verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. When they were created. So this section describes what became of the universe that God created. It describes, as we'll see today, the entrance of man. Then a couple of weeks time we'll, go, we'll see the entrance of woman. And then the entrance of sin. And then some of the devastating impact of sin in this world. But first of all... This passage sets the scene for these things to happen. And it describes them in th- with three aspects of what the world was like at this time. First of all, verse 5, the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. Now this doesn't necessarily mean that there was no rain until the flood came. Okay? Some people think that, but that's not necessarily the case. All it says is, up to this point... No rain had fallen on the earth. Instead, it said, streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Or as some translations put it, a mist rose up to water the ground. Secondly, verse 5, there was no man to work the ground. That shows where exactly we are in terms of the time of this world. It takes us back into day 6 of the creation week. So we're going back into day 6 and just kind of looking at more detail than we looked at in Genesis chapter 1. But it also hints at the purpose of mankind. That, as we'll see later, that man was created to work. And then as a result of these two circumstances, verse 5 starts with, No shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung there was no shrub and no plant. Now, this clearly can't mean that there were no plants at all on the earth. Because if this is day six in creation week, then we know that on day three, God created seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it. That's Genesis chapter 1 verse 11. So chapter 2 must have been, must, verse 5 must be talking about something different happening. And a number of people have tried to explain that. But for me, I think the simplest explanation is that the verse that we've just read is referring to two types of plants that had yet to appear on the earth because of the events that hadn't happened yet that we're going to read about in this section. First of all, there were no plants on the, of the field. This word in the original Hebrew refers to cultivated plants, grains or herbs. And they hadn't appeared because Adam hadn't yet been created to cultivate the ground. And then there was also no shrub of the field. 
Because this word refers to wild shrubs that often have thorns. And they won't spring up until after the fall of mankind and the curse of the, on the earth. And we actually see these two kind of plants mentioned in the next chapter, where in response to Adam and Eve's sin, the Lord says that the ground will be cursed and it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you'll eat the plants of the field, using those two different categories of plants that we see in chapter 2, verse 5. So that's the, the kind of setting the scene. That's the kind of background for what's going to happen in, in this section. This is day six of the creation week. There were no thorns, no crops, because there were no, was no rain, and there were no human beings. But throughout this section, we see somebody at work. And his name is the Lord God. I don't know if you noticed that as we read down through this passage. That this is the name of God that's been repeated again and again. The Lord God. The Lord God. And it's a combination of two Hebrew names. So there's God, or Elohim, who's the sovereign creator of the universe. And there's Lord, or Yahweh, the covenant-making Lord, the great I am, the unchanging, the eternal, the self-existent one who expresses faithful love and compassion and grace to his people. So this is what this section is emphasizing. That the one who is acting here, the one who is working, is not just the creator of the world, he's also the compassionate the self-existent, the unchanging, the, the covenant-making Lord. And his main work here, his main focus is in the creating of man. So verse 7. The Lord God formed the, the man from the dust of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Human beings are earthy. We are made of dust. We're made from the same physical materials as the rest of this planet. And so as human beings, our uniqueness is not found in our chemical or material constituents. Because if you break it down, we're just made of the same materials as, as this world. Rather, our uniqueness, as we saw a few weeks ago, is that the Lord has taken these everyday materials, these earthy materials, these commonplace materials, and He's uniquely formed us in His image and in His likeness. And the picture that's used here is that of a potter. An expert potter. <coughs> I don't know if you've ever done pottery. I haven't tried it, and I don't think I would be very good at it anyway. But the potter takes a lump of clay, and it doesn't look like anything. It's just undefined and, and just indistinct. And he carefully and he skillfully forms it into something beautiful. And that's a picture here. God is the potter who's taken the clay, the everyday materials, and he has carefully and skillfully formed a human being in all of its wonder. 
And we see this idea picked up throughout the scriptures and it emphasizes how valuable we are in God's sight. For example, the book of Isaiah. O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. God formed us so carefully to reflect his image so we can be sure that, he is, that we are precious in his sight. Because he's put in so much effort just to carefully form us. So it teaches us about our value, but it also teaches us that we need to get, get a right perspective on where we come in this, this world. That we need to submit to God. So in the book of Romans it says this, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? If we have been formed by God, then God has the right to decide the plan and the purpose of our lives. Because he's our maker. He is the one who formed us. He is the potter. And we are the clay. So our role in life is not to resist God and to design what we are going to do with our lives. Our job as the, as the, the clay is rather to submit to his authority and to his will. And I think if that's true about general humanity, then it's all, all the more true for us who have trusted in Jesus. Because as Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, we are God's workmanship. We are God's masterpiece, is the phrase here. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God created in advance for us to do. So as God's creation, we have been fearfully and wonderfully made in his image to fulfill his purpose in this world. And as God's children, we have been lovingly and graciously redeemed from our sin to set us free so that we can fulfill that purpose. But verse 7 doesn't just tell us that God formed Adam from the dust. It also says this, that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and that man became a living being. It's the breath of God that brought man to life, that transformed his lifeless body into a living being. And I think what that emphasizes again is our complete dependence on God. Our complete dependence on God for life. For example, when Paul was in Athens, he was standing up there and, ch- and speaking to the people there, he challenges listeners to humble themselves before the true and living God because he himself, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, but he himself gives life to all men and breath 
and everything else. God does not need us. He wants us, but He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to serve Him as if He needed something. He isn't deficient in Himself. He is the all-sufficient One. He is the self-existent One. But it's us who need Him. Without Him, we can do absolutely nothing. But this is not just true about our physical life. There's a picture in our prophecy in the book of Ezekiel that I think connects to this really well. Ezekiel was told to prophesy to a valley of dry bones. It's Ezekiel chapter 37. You want to read it later on. Have a look at it. And these bones were just lying in a valley. And Ezekiel prophesied to it and the bones came together. And they were covered in tendons and flesh and skin. Probably quite a horrific thing to see. But these, these bodies were just lifeless. Then the Lord told him to say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into the slain, that they may live. And when the breath entered them, these people stood up as a vast army for the Lord. And the book of Ezekiel tells us that this was a a powerful demonstration of God's purpose to take the dead and the lifeless nation of Israel and to transform it because God says, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And then when you come to the New Testament, you see this promise being fulfilled in a so much greater way through Jesus. The one who came to breathe the Holy Spirit into every single person, whoever they were, who trusted in Him. So maybe you remember on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus appeared to His disciples and He breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Connecting back to Ezekiel. Connecting back to the book of Genesis. And then this became a reality on the day of Pentecost when a sound like the blowing of a mighty wind came from heaven. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. What that tells us is, without the breath of God, without the Holy Spirit living inside us, We as human beings are powerless. We are helpless. We are lifeless. But with Him, but with the breath of God breathing in us, with the Spirit of God living within us, we can rise up and be a mighty army for the Lord. To serve Him and to live for Him. It's a wonderful picture of what Jesus came to die for us. To bring into our lives. But the Lord didn't just provide a body and life for man. He also provided a home. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east, 
in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. Now nobody can locate the Garden of Eden today. People have tried to kind of pinpoint where it was. Some people have suggested Mesopotamia in the Middle East, based on the location of two of the rivers that are mentioned, the Tigris and Euphrates. Others say it's just impossible. Because the flood caused such catastrophic changes in this world that you can't locate it on the earth today. But there are a number of things that this passage makes clear about this garden. First of all, this garden was a place of provision. There was lots of water. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. In fact, this water was so plentiful that it separated into four great rivers. So there's plenty of water there. Obviously essential for life. And there was food. As God made all kinds of trees grow there. Trees that were good for food. God was caring for his creation. Providing everything that man needed. In fact, in the garden was the the tree of life. Which was given to preserve and to promote life for man. So the garden was a place of provision. But God didn't just meet man's basic physical needs there. Because the garden was also a place of beauty. God also planted trees that were pleasing to the eye. Not just trees that were good for food, but also trees that were were pleasing to the eye. And I think that's really important for us to notice that. Because we know that our sinful nature has tainted and twisted our desire for beauty. It often leads us away from God into things like idolatry or lust or pride. But here we can see that God made us to admire and appreciate beauty. Because he wants us to enjoy the wonderful world that he has made. God planted those beautiful trees in the garden so that man would see them and rejoice in them. And rejoice in the one who made them. But more than that, God doesn't want us just to appreciate the beauty of what he's made. He wants us ultimately to appreciate and enjoy the most beautiful, the most wonderful reality in this world. Which of course is himself. So David writes in Psalm 27, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And to seek him in his temple. That's the highest place that God wants us to get to. Where we recognize that yes, this world is beautiful. And there are amazing things here. But the Lord, he's the most beautiful. He deserves all of our praise and admiration. And there are hints in this passage that this garden was a place of communion between man and God. For example, in verse 12, it talks about the gold and the onyx. And I think that was there to remind us of the tabernacle and the temple. 
Remember the tabernacle temple? If you're, if you, if you're familiar with that at all, you remember that a lot of the furniture in the tabernacle and in the, then later in the temple was covered in gold. And then onyx stones, these precious stones, was part of the high priest's outfit. So the original readers reading that, they would be thinking to the temple and the tabernacle. And later God is described in chapter 3 as walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Coming to commune with his people. So the garden was a place of communion. A place where God would meet with man. Of course, in chapter 3, we'll see in a couple of weeks that sin destroyed that communion. But we can go to the end of the book, book of Revelation. And we can see that ultimately that communion is restored in the New Jerusalem, which Revelation describes as a city of gold and precious stones, with the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And the tree of life being there, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Again, kind of picking up those, those ideas, those images from the book of Genesis, to say that this is a restoration of what sin destroyed. <coughs> but the best thing about heaven, of course, is that the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. So Eden was a paradise. It's a, a place where man was blessed by food and beauty and God's presence. But the interesting thing for me is, the really interesting thing is, that Eden was not a place of idle inactivity. Did you notice verse 15? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to sit back and enjoy the sun every day and relax doesn't say that does it he, was, he put, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it Adam had a job to do he was called to work now I think this really is so important because it means that work is not the result of sin in the world. Work is not part of is not here because of the fallenness of humanity or the sin curse on this planet. Yes, sin changed work from being fruitful and enjoyable to being painful and unproductive. But work was always part of God's design for humanity. Paradise is a place of work. And the really interesting thing is that this word translated to work here, it's most commonly translated in the Bible to serve. So Adam, for Adam, his work wasn't just meaningless labour. Rather it was God honouring service. As Adam worked in the garden, he was serving the one who made him. So last week we looked at this verse in John 5. My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working, Jesus said. 
And so as his image bearers, we have been made to work. To use our ability and strength and creativity and care to look after God's world as his representatives. And as followers of Jesus, this is also our calling. As we read earlier, as members of the body of Christ, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works. Now how each of us do this, well that varies according to our personalities, or abilities, or gifts, or circumstances, or health, or strength, or the season of life we're in, and all of these things. But each of us, whoever we are, whatever situation we are in, we have been saved to serve. We have been saved by God to serve God. But amazingly, this doesn't only apply to what we might describe as ministry. You know, kind of directly doing things to serve in church or in in outreach or in, in, in acts of service. This applies to everything that we do. Paul wrote to the the slaves in the church in Colossae. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. This is amazing. Because it doesn't matter how seemingly mundane or insignificant our service is. It doesn't matter if we've got a job that we don't like, or we we just have to do the dishes in the house, or we have to do the housework, or even do the gardening, Tommy. It doesn't matter. Because when we work faithfully for the Lord, He's going to reward it. Whatever we do, we are called to serve the Lord in it. And then even then, His reward His reward is not an eternity of self-indulgent ease and idleness. Heaven isn't a place where we'll just lie about all day on some cloud eating Philadelphia cheese or whatever the idea is. (laughs) In Jesus' parable of the talents, the master said to his good and faithful servants, you have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. The reward for faithful service for the Lord is amazing privilege to serve Him more and more. Because that's what we're designed for, guys. This is what we're here for. We're here to serve the Lord. Not ourselves. We're here to be active and to have the privilege of honouring God in everything that we do. And if we do that, then we'll have more and more opportunities to do that in heaven. So God loves to reward those who serve Him. But unfortunately, as human beings, we are often more focused on serving ourselves. 
And so finally the garden was also a place of testing. God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it you will surely die. There was great freedom in that garden. Adam was allowed to eat from any tree that he wanted apart from one. So there was great freedom and only a tiny little bit of limitation. But eating from that tree that God had said no to would express a rejection of God's rule and a rebellion against God's authority. And it would bring devastating consequences. As God's image bearers, we have been given the freedom to choose between right and wrong, between good and evil, between serving God and serving ourselves. And ultimately, this choice is a choice between life and death. And as we'll see in a couple of weeks' time, mankind tragically chose death. But we're here this morning because we are rejoicing that because Jesus chose to die in our place, we can experience life with God forever. So in 1 Corinthians 15 it says this, As in, Od- as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. But today the focus what I want us to, to really grasp this morning is that we're, we are not called to a life of idle and self-centered indulgence. Don't believe the adverse in this world. Don't buy in to the dream in this world. It could be you. That's not what we're called for. That's not what we're being made for. Instead, we've been wonderfully made by God as his masterpiece. And we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit living within us so that we can give ourselves fully to serving the Lord with everything that we are, everything that we have, and in everything that we do so we can bring glory to our Creator God and our loving Saviour.